Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. I am your host this week, Jensen Bieler from Asphalt and Rubber. And joining me on the microphones is the very esteemed Mr. David Emmett from Moto Matters. Hello, David. Hello, uh, Jensen. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. But I'm doing excellent because we are also joined by the man, the myth, the legend, Superbike Steve English. Steve, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Jensen. Good to have you back on the podcast as well. It is good to be back. Uh, you know, longtime listener, sometimes hoster. Excited to be here and talk about some World Superbikes with you two fellas. So let's just get right into it. Um, we've had quite a season this year. Uh, no surprise to see Jonathan Ray clinch the title, but it's been an interesting road through the season, Steve. And I wanted to get, um, you know, right off the bat, your perspective on one of the big things we talked about in the preseason, which was the changing regulations, because obviously Dorna is trying to kind of balance out the performance between the different manufacturers, maybe with an eye on which riders are on those bikes and trying to provide more of a spectacle for the fans of World Superbike and keep racing tight and keep things interesting. And I don't know, do you, do you think they were effective in that regard? Well, I think we had six different race winners. We had nine different riders on the podium, 12 riders led a race. So arguably, the changes did have an effect. Whether or not it had enough of an effect compared to what the expectations were coming into the season is a different topic. But for me, I think that people got overshadowed or maybe people thought too much about the rev limits whereas really for me the biggest changes were the fact that it was pretty much mandated that every bike on the grid from a manufacturer could be the same spec as the leading bike from that manufacturer so if you were a back of the grid team with a kawasaki you could just spend some money and get the exact same spec as what krt were running and i think that for me was probably the biggest change that we've seen in world sbk in recent years and it's one of those changes that i think over the course of the next couple of years has the potential to really make a big change in the overall championship as well. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think because, you know, obviously we focus on the Kawasaki, but I think you really saw the big difference there uh, with the Ducati, with uh, Xavi Forres on the um, uh, on the Barney Ducati. I mean, you know, he had some he had a really, really strong season this year. Uh, and you have to wonder how much of that was down to just having faster access to more equal parts than the same parts as the factory team. Yeah, the one thing about Fares and Barney is they've had a very established relationship with Ducati Course over the last couple of years. So they have actually had the same spec of bike by and large for the last 18 months. But what was interesting for me was actually talking to some of the guys down in Pichetti or Pettuccini about the changes. Because Pichetti in particular, in their first year stepping up to World SBK last year with Krumenacker, they spent a fortune on engine development. They spent a fortune just dynoing engines. And basically, whenever you take an engine into the dyno to test it, all you do is blow it up. You're looking to get to the absolute limit of that, of that engine with all the internal parts. And then you rebuild it and you just get yourself ready to go again to test another engine. And eventually you find the system that works. You find an electronics configuration that works. But for this year, Pichetti just had to simply go to Kawasaki and say, all right, these are the internals that we want to buy and it's going to cost us X amount. And because we've got the same spec of engine as what KRT have, we can have the same spec of electronics and everything can work the same. And all those kind of changes, I think, were 
probably the biggest change for me um, as opposed to what we saw with the likes of Barney because with their relationship with Ducati there's always been Ducati engineers there's always been a crossover of parts so I think the big change was probably with the teams that run the Kawasaki's. So you think it was um, almost more of a cost-saving measure rather than a development measure if you like? Well I think you could say it's cost-saving for me it's more about just condensing that midfield you make a, a team like Pettuccini or Pacetti more competitive basically you tell them okay you can have the exact same spec as KRT the only difference is going to be the quality of riders you can hire and the quality of engineers and mechanics that you'll have in your box and that for me is the biggest change here and I wouldn't view it so much as being a cost capping exercise just as a way to balance the field a bit more. David I'm curious for your perspective because we've seen in MotoGP how effective a spec electronic box has been in terms of making the racing more engaging, having more race winners, having more diversity on the podium. Do you see that as um, something that World Superbike should follow? I know we've seen in the domestic series, you know, here in Moto America at least, that we're talking a lot about spec electronics and the cost of electronics. Do you think there's value to bringing something like that to World Superbike or should we leave those systems more open well it, it's difficult because it's not like uh, moto gp for for a start you know the budgets aren't uh, aren't all at the same level as steve says uh, the fact that you know once you've developed once a factory has or a manufacturer has developed electronics uh, they make that available to all the other teams on the same bike that's that's a, a big thing but having a single set of sort of unified um, electronics can be tricky we're seeing this in uh, in Moto2 right now, the advent of the Triumph engine, everyone is switching to the Magneti Morelli um, electronics. But uh, when MotoGP went to Magneti Morelli uh, electronics, basically what they did was they gave everyone a, a just basically like an empty box almost. They just gave them sort of, here's the electronics. There's no values in the electronics. There's no values in the data. Uh, there's no engine maps. There's no nothing. Go away, figure it out for yourself. And so the manufacturers went away and spent hours and hours and hours. I mean, you know, hundreds, probably thousands of hours on the dyno, um, uh, developing torque maps, developing engines, uh, uh, getting the engines running right. Um and then they supply those torque maps and those engine maps with certain limitations to their to their satellite teams. That requires an awful lot of resource, uh, resources. When you go to um, World Superbikes, then it's a little bit different because you don't really have the same structure of factory and satellite teams uh, that you do in 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 MotoGP. Um, so you can't just give you know everyone these this empty box of electronics because they or the, the factories don't or, or, or the teams don't all have the resources to as steve says you know go into a uh, go into the dyno um uh, figure out a, a torque map which works and then go and refine the torque map and go and uh, spend hours and hours and hours getting this thing uh to work and to 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 to, to optimize these electronics as uh, as well as they can so it's it's tricky on uh, on the one hand it looks like um you've got a simple set of or, or you have a much simpler system uh, but on the other hand it's very easy to spend a lot of uh, a lot of money doing it i think i mean there's talk about this the the spec electronics in bsb but the spec electronics in bsb are very very um, they're much more simplified than uh, any of the electronics used in um, 
in any of the uh, well in, in any of the world championship series um and it's also it's you know it's it's com- it's completely different there is still sort of some level of uh, technological development going on in world uh, world superbikes there's some kind of feedback loop going back to uh, the, the manufacturers, which is just not happening in Moto America or BSB. I think that's a really good point to bring up, David, because World Superbike is the pinnacle level of production motorcycle racing, and it does have to draw a direct line back to what's being sold at the dealership floor, basically. And that's that's an important link to remember, and that's still an area where manufacturers are are developing a bit. And, you know, that was kind of a question I had percolating in my mind for you, Steve, is, you know, there's always this talk about um, balancing the rules or balancing the performance to try and reel back in like Jonathan Ray to reel back in the Kawasaki. But, you know, we're looking at one of the most talented riders on the grid on a team that is outspending and outresourcing the uh, its competition, you know, quite handedly. You know, should we really be looking at limiting electronics? Should we really be looking at limiting, you know, Ray and Kawasaki? Or is it really up to the, the other teams to develop their systems, to develop better motorcycles, to, to try and compete with the level that, you know, Ray and Kawasaki are, are operating at? Yeah, well, to ask a software engineer, JB, whether or not we should limit <laughs> electronics in a series, I'm always going to say we shouldn't. But even if you look at uh, what Ray and Kawasaki do, it's not the electronics that makes the difference. It's not the bike. It's the stability that that team has. Ray's had the exact same crew of people around them for four years. He's had the same crew chief, same data guy, same suspension, same mechanics, same team all around him. And that's what makes the big difference. When you look up and down the grid, there's change for every other team on the grid, whether it's, you know, Chaz Davis for this year, he's got a new bike and a new crew chief. Ducati's got a new rider in there as well in the form of Bautista. You look at Yamaha and there was a crew chief change last year for Lowe's. It was the second year on the bike for Vandermark in 2018. So you end up with all of these changes and a team has to adapt them. It takes, you know, half a season to gel with a crew chief. So suddenly you could end up where you're, you're through five, six rounds of the superbike season, your championship's done. And then you're just starting to make some progress. And that's typically what we've actually seen over the last few years. As the season wears on, teams do tend to catch up to Kawasaki. But then over the winter, Kawasaki just make another step forward. They find another 2-3% potential from their bike and they make that step forward. If you're trying to catch up to that, you're having to make you know a 5%, 6% improvement year on year. And that's not sustainable for any team, particularly whenever Kawa is the one that spends the most money in the championship. They're the only manufacturer that doesn't have an interest in MotoGP as well that's at the front of World SBK. So with that being the case, it's not the electronics that make the difference. It's the people, it's the money, it's the resources. And the fact that you've got Jonathan Ray on your bike, whether or not people want to say he is, Jonathan Ray is statistically the best rider we've ever seen on a superbike and arguably is the best rider we've ever seen on a superbike. So when you put all those factors in together, it's that that makes the difference rather than electronics or changing the bikes or limiting their revs or any other factor that you can try and do to try and slow down Kawasaki it's more just a case of they need the other manufacturers to make that step up as far as I'm concerned and I think that's one of the things that we're probably going to see over the course of the next couple of years Ducati has shown and they put their money where their mouth is as well that they will be making a big investment in World SBK they've brought out a brand new bike it looks good from the initial tests that we've seen on the bike. BMW are back as a full factory outfit for next year. Honda are back as a HRC supported team. How HRC that team is, 
that will remain to be seen. You're probably looking at 2020 before we really see what HRC can do in World SBK. But at least we've got all these manufacturers making that step to try and up their investments. Yeah, it, it was interesting you talk about uh, stability because I remember um, at some point it took Chaz Davies a long time to sign a new contract. And one of the issues for him was he wanted to ride the V4 before um, uh, before actually signing the contract, even though in the end he couldn't. Uh, but he would have liked to have been able to just because, it, again, it's a big change and he has to uh, be certain that this were, that it was going to be worth it sort of thing, that, uh, that, that he knew what he was letting himself into because it is a change and as you say Steve that stability you see the same MotoGP you see it with Andrea Dovizioso at Ducati you know he's been there since 2013 uh, it's taken them this long really to turn the bike around uh, working as a factory but also just having that stability of, of Dovizioso and consistent feedback and um, uh, and all the rest of it and it's the same for, it's, a, it's the same for Johnny and um, uh, for Jonathan Ray and for and for Perry Reba and for Kawasaki they all know exactly what they've got they all know exactly um uh, you know what to expect of one another they, they all understand each other the perio reba understands exactly what jonathan ray needs and whenever kawasaki bring out an update to the bike then they find a way do you know what i mean they they find a way to get the the best out of it. they've just got so much less work to do at the start of each season just just one thought before we move along fellas you know one of the things that's really interesting to me at least from from you know, my corner of the industry looking at the the production bikes and the super bikes that are coming out to consumers is is looking at the rules that uh, World Superbike has put together to kind of encourage manufacturers to I don't know if take the series more seriously is the right perspective, but but it does feel like that in a sort of way where we see the uh, number of required motorcycles for the homologation is quite low. It's five hundred bikes for two years, two fifty in the first year. Um, there's a price cap of 40,000 euros. And now we're seeing the allowance of winglets if they come out on the production model. And we've seen Aprilia and Ducati kind of bite on that technology aspect. Um, so I'm kind of curious to see what your thoughts are, especially you, Steve, on, on where you see the regulations moving uh, the series for 2019 and onward. Well, the biggest thing that we've seen is that the bikes in World SBK are now more stock than we've ever seen in the past. There has been a big change away from, say, when the a pretty RSV4 first came out, when it was a proper race bike for the road, and now these are getting more and more road bike-like. And I think that transition to making it more and more stock, it's hurt some riders, it's helped some riders, it's hurt some manufacturers, it's helped some manufacturers. And I think that it's that change is just going to continue to be seen more and more. Yeah, I mean, to me, it like we're halfway back to the homologation specials again. If you if you like, the trouble is the market is very very different. The market is much it's very different to twenty years ago when everyone was riding sports bikes, or certainly everyone in in Europe. And now sports bikes are a much more specific product. We've got this price cap, which has stopped people from building sort of you know building and racing the ridiculous bikes. Uh, but it does mean that the, the the bikes which are actually being raced are uh, very very focused, uh, very very narrowly focused race bikes. And I think you see it especially with the Ducati V4. It's a it's, it's it really is just a race bike on the road. It's basically just a it's a very toned down um, uh, Desmo Sedici. Yeah, it's also worth noting as well, though, that's the first time in the last few years where we have actually seen a manufacturer come out and do that. Yeah, 
I think uh, I think the Panigale V4R is just the tip of an iceberg that's that's coming down the way, and maybe World Superbike is the is the Titanic that's about to collide with it. Because you look at that machine, uh, I think Steve, you and I were talking in in World Superbike spec, it's going to rev to nearly seventeen thousand RPMs before the the performance balancing regulations hit it. That's insane. Um, looking at the technology that's in that bike, what's in the motor, the materials that they're using, I mean, it, it's obvious that. D- Ducati is very, very, very serious about winning a world superbike title with with their team and that machine. But it's fascinating to, for me, at least, to see the level of performance that is going into what is essentially a production bike. It, it has to have a warranty. It has to run on pump gas. It has lights and mirrors and a license plate. And that performance level is something that, you know, isn't that far off to where the race bikes were maybe five, seven years ago? Uh, it's pretty astounding to see that progression. Two things. I think, first of all, what was amazing was when Steve, myself, were down in Jerez at the World Superbike Test, we're seeing Ducati's test rider, Alessandro Valia, do a 144 on a street bike. I mean, it was a bike with light. He had the lights on as he was going around, rap- uh, you know, lapping at that, uh, at that pace. That's absolutely freaking amazing that in itself also shows that how incredibly good modern modern motorcycles are even modern street motorcycles there's i mean i remember obviously being uh, here's my old man uh, stories coming out i remember uh, riding a suzuki gt380 it would have been a 78 or a 79 model and um uh, there was one um there was one corner i used to take which had a bump in it and i used to i used to enjoy sort of hitting that bump and and feeling the rear wallow all the way around it now i mean you know you get on any bond sports bike and go through around that same corner at uh, uh, at the same speed and uh, you know with the with that well you wouldn't notice the the, the thing would be perfectly just perfectly absorbed the this this one centimeter bump i used to go over and which used to completely upset the bike the bike would 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 barely notice i mean it's been a very long time since uh ordinary road riders could get anywhere near the limits of um uh of a modern sports bike and i think that's uh but that's that is also something which feeds into the world superbikes and which world superbikes feeds back into uh, uh into road bikes yeah and one of the things to remember as well is if you look at the as you said, Dave, the development of bikes over the last 20, 30, 40 years, it's been staggering because if you look at the super sport machines now, like the Yamaha R6, it's probably just as powerful as, you know, a Ducati in the 90s in the World SBK paddock. And that evolution is what we see in every industry, obviously, but it's been interesting to see how much it's changed everything about production racing in particular and as Jensen said if you look at these superbikes now particularly the new Ducati V4 and compare it to what we saw in MotoGP a few years ago you can easily see all the hallmarks from a GP bike coming towards your street bike now as well yeah yeah exactly I mean I think the 916 in its first version produced something like 140 horsepower something like that 145 horsepower um uh, those sort of numbers that's which is um, you know, yeah, what a what, what an R6 will produce. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where the other manufacturers follow uh, down this line to see if they take up kind of um, Ducati's position, coming out with the very specific homologation specials that are going to cost us, you know, forty thousand euro, forty thousand dollars. 
it seems to me from my perspective on the consumer side that that's that's likely to be the case we've seen some rumors um one of the things that struck me interesting was we didn't really see kawasaki follow that model uh for 2019 instead bringing kind of some uh let's say more modest updates to the ninja zx 10 rr but i don't think there's any doubt in my mind that we will see that bike still at the at the pointy end of the stick next season and and steve you know it's been interesting to see that it, it's i think you mentioned it earlier in the podcast they always seem to find a way to to extract more out of that package to raise the bar at least one step higher than their competition and and you know 2018 was another example of what Jonathan Ray and Kawasaki can do when they're paired together and the dominance that they create. Yeah, well, I think if you were to look at just the Kawasaki in general as well, it's, it is the best superbike out there in terms of a race bike. JR won the World SBK Championship. You had Leon Haslam won the British Championship. Ray and Haslam were teammates at Suzuka. They put the bike on pole. You know, like that bike is a great bike in whatever guise you want to put on it with electronics, without electronics, with a Pirelli tire, with a Bridgestone tire on tight, narrow British tracks, wide open Grand Prix tracks. That's the bike to beat in just about every championship right now. And it's that step that they've made that, you know, Ducati can bring out a new bike, but it doesn't necessarily mean that instantly when we get to Phillip Island, Bury Ram, and Aragon that they're going to make this giant step forward Davis is going to win all six races he's going to have to work hard to just be able to put that bike on the level of Kawasaki one thing which I find interesting and I wish uh, I knew the, the truth about if you like is obviously uh, Kawasaki Jonathan Ray Perry-Reba they understand uh, what they have they understand what they need from a bike uh but they also understand that uh, the bike they start the season with will uh, not be quite the same as the one that they end the season with because they know that Jonathan Ray is going to win a whole bunch of races and as soon as he does that, uh, then they'll get rev limits. And so, you know, when do they start working towards sourcing out the bike, preparing the bike for those rev limits later on? It was actually quite interesting this year because it was actually, Kawasaki had concession points available at the start of the season. So after the first, I think it was three rounds, each of the manufacturers was evaluated based on their results. And because Ducati had won four out of six races in those opening three rounds, they didn't get any concession points, but Kawasaki actually did have concession points. And they could have brought some upgrades to their engine as a result of that, but Kawasaki looked at it and the, their racing department is quite small. And if you bring a change of any of your engine internals, it has to be made available to all of the teams in the championship running your man your your bike so kawasaki would have had to make the same engine upgrade available to pacetti pedicini Aurelac. so they just looked at it and said we're not going to make that upgrade so while you can lose some of your revs kawasaki actually made a step not to bring the upgrades that were available to them this year as well yeah again this is this is down to the stability uh, you have this stability the, the benefits of the stability is that uh, you know what you've got and you're just uh, trying to optimize and get the best out of what you already have rather than uh, messing around and then spending another two or three rounds sort of like trying to figure out exactly how to get the, the best out of all the new bits and bobs you've brought that's funny David because I see it another way I just look at it, that's that's the margin that Kawasaki is working in where they don't necessarily need to bring the latest and greatest parts to be competitive they're they know that they can be competitive at, at like, say, a level that's a step below their maximum. And that, that would worry me if I was their competition. 
Yeah, and that's the one thing, JP. It's like, as you said, there is that margin. And if you're Kawasaki, your margin for error is Jonathan Rampariba. They've found a way to get the most from that bike. And, and that's what gives them the ability to basically turn the bike upside down from 2017 to 2018, just like they did in 15, 16, 17. Those bikes were all completely different characters, completely different machines. And Kawasaki found a way to make them work because Ray and Reba were able to figure it out. And that's why even if you slash the revs from them, they just look at it and say, all right, well, that means that we need a bike that is quicker in a corner. We need to make this where it's not you know stop start it's about being able to flow through a corner and then obviously for 2019 they've been able to bring out a new homologation so they're able to say okay well our revs on the production bike they've actually increased we've done x y and z to try and change the character of the engine delivery if we lose revs during the season we'll have to adapt to that but they're obviously already going to thought about that and tried to find the solution to it and when you're kawasaki and there's so few boxes that you actually have to tick like if you're, you know, David, we were down at the Jerez test and we heard Alex Lowe was talking about we need to find half a second. You know, if you're trying to find half a second, you're looking for big changes. If you're trying to find half a tenth like Kawasaki are, you're just looking for the small details. Yeah, I mean, one thing which I find interesting, certainly about 2018, is how much um, did uh, Jonathan Ray flatter the Kawasaki and how much was the just how good the Kawasaki was sort of like hidden a little bit by sort of you know various the various problems that the other people had I mean obviously Tom Sykes had a difficult year but he had uh, you know he was going through a turbulent period in his life Razgatlioglu uh, was a rookie I think top rack certainly didn't have the experience on, uh, on the bike and so that um, uh, I wonder how much you know everyone just thinks okay it was it was you know, Jonathan Ray on this bike is what makes it uh, outstanding maybe there's a little bit more to it than that yeah I think that one of the most interesting things that we actually found out at the Jerez test was when we talked to Leon Haslam about the bike and Haslam, of course, he's ridden the Kawasaki over the last few years. He's gone through each of the different iterations. He's raced in it in World SBK trim as well a couple of times. He's been on the podium in World SBK trim. But he said this bike isn't that easy to ride. He's had to change his riding style completely. He's had to adapt his settings. He's had to basically look at what Jonathan Ray does and try and copy Jonathan Ray. Well, Steve, uh, I know you and David talked to Haslam when, during that Hareth test. So why don't we make a little quick segue and listen to the audio from... Uh, that testing session in Spain, and we'll come back and talk about Ducati. Again, it, do, it doesn't really tell you that. I'm, I've not changed the setup at all, to be honest with you. I'm just running what they're running, and um, again, it's adapting myself to that bike rather than adapting the bike to me because the bike's obviously winning, so it's a matter of... It, we will come to a point where we will adapt the bike to me, but until I ride it in the best way or understand how to ride it it's right. kind of pointless setting it up to me because i'm riding it wrong so it's a it's a catch 22 so you've ridden was it three times in the last two years the Petrucini and then the Pichetti last year was obviously mm. very different Pichetti than the one the year before yeah but like are they pretty useful at all or has the bike changed that much since it's not the bike changes how to ride it again and doing a one-off wild card you get to see data, you get to understand what I'm doing wrong, but it's then obviously you don't get to put that into practice. So, yes, you can, you know, arrive second at Donington or I got like a battling for fourth at Imola or whatever it may be, but the gap to 
winning is massive <laughs> you know regardless of the resort it, it kind of didn't really paint the picture of what it was so to make that that gap you know it might only be half a second might be 0.6 or whatever it is per lap it's how you need to ride the bike to do it because the bikes are capable it's just a combination it's a combination of electronics how you ride it you set up so it's also got the grip because at the minute the feedback's not coming back to me to say okay i need more grip or you know i'm thinking that i can't stop the bike but i'm actually loads faster on brakes so, so what it's telling me at the minute is not necessarily what i need to go fast so it's understanding that side of it is there any carryover in the comparison between you and johnny from 14 um no johnny's style is very different in the fact how he breaks and how he exits the turns but that's also allowing the bike to work in a better place so it's probably more you know tom's style was completely different and i'd say mine's in the middle of the two um and tom had points on the track that he was a lot stronger for his style and johnny had strengths of where he's stronger and he's kind of from my point of view is understanding both of them and trying to adapt the best of both and that's where we're at at the minute so are you using um, your setup based on Johnny's setup or based on Tom's? Um, it's actually a bit of a combination of the two. I run both bikes at Aragon. Um, my style initially was suiting Tom's bike more than Johnny's, yeah. but then Johnny's obviously style is working better for resorts, so I'm now, that's why I'm looking right, to... You're chasing his style sort of thing, so you can use his setup. His style suits his setup. Yeah. Tom style suited his setup, yeah. so it's it's how you ride the bike to how you set it up, and, yeah, and that's yeah. that's what's great. And it's not massive differences. You're talking 0.2 degree of head angles or whatever. It's like yeah. little millimeters there or there. It's not like night and day, um, but it's mainly how you ride the bike to what you want from the bike. Well, obviously, boys, uh, Leon Haslam's going to have his work cut out for him next season. I'm very curious to see how he's going to do in the World Superbike paddock again, especially on uh, a championship-winning team uh, like KRT. Uh, the other thing I'm really curious to see is how Chaz Davies and Alvaro Bautista get along with their new package. And uh, you know, I said it earlier, Ducati's looking very serious about the championship for next year. Um, what was your perspective, uh, the both of you, from... Uh, Hareth and how that team is coming together and um, you know what the prospects are looking like uh, for next season uh, David for a start I think first of all I was quite impressed with how quick uh, Bautista was right from the off he didn't look like he was struggling particularly to uh, adapt to the Ducati uh, the only thing he said about it was it's slow but then um, that's not really surprising given uh, that he's coming off you know a 300 horsepower um, uh, Desmos Adichie and jumping onto whatever it is 240, 250 what, I don't know what, what how much power that thing will be kicking out but it's still a good deal less than um, uh, than he's used to um, uh, Chas Davies looked pretty good but then it was difficult to tell also because he was still suffering from um, uh, the shoulder injury he's had uh, the shoulder problems he's had uh, for part of the year uh, he was, uh, I think, was he scheduled for surgery? Yeah, he's, he's had his operation, though. Yeah, uh, exactly. So again, it's really difficult to it's difficult to say. But the bike looks absolutely fantastic. Watching it out on track, it sounded fantastic, and it didn't really look like it was it was having a, a 
a great deal of problems. Yeah, one of the most interesting things for me about the Ducati Dave was actually the feedback that we got from Bautista comparing it to Davis. As you said, Davis was injured during the test and actually on the final day of the Jerez test, the day that PBM had their BSB test, I, I was in Jerez for that day as well and uh, talking to Davis, he said that he couldn't do any laps at all that day. It was literally just he was doing practice starts because his shoulder was was still struggling that much. He went in for a surgery. He's had that uh, he's had the plate removed, I think, and he's back on the road to full fitness. But what uh, was interesting was Bautista came in and talked about that the bike, in terms of stability on the brakes, wasn't as strong as what he had expected. And Davis was saying this bike was so much better than last year's uh, Panigale. So for Bautista coming from the GP paddock, he's obviously going to have very different feedback compared to Davis. And that could be one of the issues that Ducati have over the course of the, of the winter and the early races next year. Do they listen more and more to Bautista or do they trust what Davis knows as well? Obviously, Eugene Laverty is going to be on the Ducati as well. So Gigi Delinia has used Laverty and Davis to develop his bikes in the past and they could form a, a really important role in just uh, getting that before ready for next year you know steve one of the things i'm 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 hesitant while i listen to you both talk is you know i feel like we've gotten into this trap before where we start looking at the ducati program we start getting excited about what the results that they can achieve and i feel the very same way about it for the 2019 season but if we go back in time uh, a year ago when we were talking about getting ready for for the 2018 season you know the, the excitement was similar we were sitting there talking about whether or not Chaz davies would be um able to rise to the competition that that Jonathan Ray was providing and um you know it truthfully I was I was disappointed in Ducati's results this year uh you know they had a good a good start they got the double in Phillip Island and then you know where do they go from there you know can you can you walk me through Ducati's 2018 season because I feel like frankly it's a little bit of a disaster yeah, I think it's fair to say that Ducati ran out of steam in 2018. As you said, in Phillip Island, they did the double. Phillip Island is always a bit of a strange race anyway. Everyone does stay quite close to each other. We had the situation where we had a pit stop race as well. We went from there to Bury Ram and to Aragon, and Davis was able to pick up a win in both of them. It really looked like there was that uh, early season momentum for Ducati, but from that point on, it really did patter out. But a lot of that comes down to just the sheer relentlessness of Jonathan Ray during the course of the season it, like I think Ray spent everything bar about 80 or 90 laps in a podium position this season and if he's doing that he's just putting so much pressure on particularly Chaz Davis to be able to get results that when you come to the end of the development cycle of a bike when your rival's giving you that much to think about it's very easy just for mistakes to happen it's very easy just to run out of development it's very easy to start just focusing on a new bike and i think all those factors probably played into ducati season i think if you were to ask ducati and david we did talk to Gigi delinia in harath and if you were to talk to himself paluchi abadi Chaz davis they'd all say that probably they would have loved to have been able to have the v4 a year early instead it was doing a european test system but it just wasn't possible so for them i think it was really a case of just the lead times caused them to have to run the Panigale for an extra year and we just saw a bike come to the end of its development cycle and it's pretty much as simple as that. Basically just ran out of steam you know the the bike was in good shape at the start of the season and uh, and then it, it never really sort of went forward and I think that was the that was the big problem for the uh, uh, for Davies and the Panigale all season. Yeah and I think one of the easiest comparisons that you can probably make between Ray and Davis is that 
Ray, as I said, spent pretty much the whole season in the top three positions on track. Davis spent most of the season in the top five positions on track. And it's just one of those ones where there's not really an awful lot of difference between fifth and third or fourth and second. But over the course of 26 races, it all starts to add up. And when you look at Jonathan Ray ending the season so strongly with, you know, he was unbeaten from, I think it was July onwards. So when you get to that point, it's just momentum's on his side. And there's a lot of factors against Ducati on the other side. Yeah, that's the magic of the Grand Prix points uh, system, basically. You know, like from to, from the difference between first and third is nine points, and that's that really, really sort of adds up. The difference between the difference between what second and um, uh, second and fourth is seven points, and that's a lot of points to make good over the course uh, over the course of a season. Yeah, particularly whenever you're up against Ray, who doesn't tend to make his mistakes in races. He makes a lot of mistakes in practice. He's a bit like Mark Marquez, where he'll especially in free practice one you'll see Ray ride really aggressively he's you know a lot of small mistakes just as he tries to find that limit and then as the weekend progresses he irons out all those mistakes and that's what we saw this year in particular as well in Super Bowl where again like last year he made a big step forward and how he was able to qualify. Steve give me your thoughts on Marco Melander because I had really uh I really had I let's say higher expectations for him uh this season especially seeing what he was able to do in uh, his final seasons in MotoGP and kind of just his, his career as a rider. Wasn't quite there, though. What what do you put that down to as a factor? Yeah, for Melandri, over the course of the last couple of years, we've seen a rider that's been able to, you know, I think he's won three races in his two years since coming back to World SBK. He's been a podium contender at every round, but not every race. And I think that's been the key thing for him. In race one, a lot of the time over the last two years, he'd finish you know, fourth or fifth. So we'd be in a position for race two to be able to qualify in the front row and be able to battle at the front. But unlike someone like Chaz Davis, who's coming from seventh, eighth, ninth on the grid in race two, Melandri's had that advantage of starting at the front. And even so, Davis, over the course of the two years, has pretty soundly beaten them. Obviously, we saw as well this year that Melandri did have a lot of struggles with the bike. He, and that changed his confidence as the year went on as well. If you think back to this season, one of the big defining images that you'll have of the season is Melandri going down any long straight and just that Ducati just shaking around underneath him. And obviously for Melandri, it was doing that in Phillip Island. He picked up a double win, so he still had confidence going to the next couple of rounds. But whenever you're not winning races, suddenly that confidence gets taken away and a big problem starts... Uh, well, What's a big problem becomes a massive problem and it becomes an unsurmountable problem. And I think that's really what we saw from Melandria times this year. I have to agree with that. I mean, he, um, uh, he is a little mercurial. He did venerable publication MotoGP News used to call him Marco the random number generator. And it felt a little bit like that sometimes um, uh, this year as well, because he was clearly capable of winning races, but he was also clearly capable of, of being absolutely, absolutely nowhere. I think part of this is also the, the you know, the, we had this reverse grid and um, all that did was make um, Jonathan Ray and, and Chaz Davies really, really good at overtaking from the start. I think you really you really saw the difference uh, there in the riders who sort of figured that, figured that out quickly and, uh, and and the riders who tended to struggle trying to fight, them, fight their way through the pack. You saw, uh, uh, I mean, it was actually quite amazing to watch Ray being so decisive in his passing and, and, and in the way that he absolutely sliced his way forward within two or three laps and the Davies did it 
almost as well, but not quite as well. And that was perhaps the difference between being, you know, finishing fourth and second, as you said, Steve. Yeah, I think that if you look at Melandry's season, obviously he won in Phillip Island in race one, won in race two. But I think other than that Phillip Island race one podium, he only had one other podium in race ones this season. And and he had 10 podiums. So it showed that he had the potential, if he was at the front, to be able to do all right. But just couldn't do it enough times on the Saturday races to really justify Ducati holding on to him, particularly whenever they had Bautista waiting in the wings. Well, yeah, I think uh, given the choice between Bautista and Melander, I think I know who I'm going to pick, Steve. But just going back to something that David said about Marco's kind of mercurial nature, I think that that really showed itself through when he was at Aprilia and wasn't happy in that, that I should say, Aprilia's MotoGP team. Um, you know, he wasn't really happy in that environment there's a lot of speculation about what his results were in terms of the effort that he was putting forth. And I can kind of see that translating again to Ducati where you're looking at a program that, you know, as you guys said, ran out of steam. I imagine there was a point somewhere in the 2018 season where the resources were being thrown at the V4 project more than they were at the V twin project, realizing where the results were going to come from, maybe planning ahead um, more for the 2019 season. And I could see how that could affect someone like, like Marco where, you know, he's looking at the effort being put out by Ducati as not being 100% for the 2018 season or for or for his racing effort. So why should he put out 100% and that that tapers off? Do you think Do you think that could be the case, Steve? Yeah, I think with Melandri, as you said, JB, the best example of it is 2015 in MotoGP. He came to that season having finished the 2014 Superbike season as the man to beat again. Like he was running on great form he picked up a lot of wins in that second half of the season he was riding as well as we'd seen him riding a long time and then suddenly he gets thrown back into MotoGP he didn't want to be there and his heart wasn't in it at all he wanted to be in superbikes he wanted to win a world championship he knew he wasn't going to do that in MotoGP so I think he really he made it perfectly clear to everyone how little he wanted to be in MotoGP that translated to halfway through the season eventually getting getting the boot from that team he spent a year on the sidelines though and being away from racing definitely gave him a different perspective on it i think at ducati he never stopped working hard from what the team would tell you and he always showed that he had the potential to you know have a podium to maybe challenge for a race win but it just wasn't quite close enough to Chaz davis for 26 rounds a year or 26 races a year and uh, with that being the case they make that decision Yamaha are going to be pretty happy though to happen because he'll be on the GRT bike next year so GRT bring a second competitive Yamaha team into World SBK next year they put Melandri on one bike and suddenly you know he'll go to a totally different environment again it's an environment where he's had success in the past at the end of the day Melandri's won on every bike he's raced in World SBK so he'll go back to Yamaha and he'll be a central figure again in you know the you know the important data acquisition and the important feedback that you give to a manufacturer and that could make all the difference for him as well to an extent sort of yamaha had almost had the opposite uh, the, uh, an opposite season to ducati in in 2018 in the sense that uh, well while ducati sort of seemed to lose steam about halfway through the season uh, yamaha really picked up uh, uh, the pace basically once they got back to uh, once they got back to europe um because we you know we started thinking the season you know they're going to be competitive and uh, and they weren't really um 
But then uh, as the season went on, uh, we saw uh, Michael van der Mark win, win races. Uh, we saw uh, Alex Lowe's pick up a whole bunch of podiums. Um, they both look, just look really, really, really competitive. They made a really big step forward. Yeah, I think that's probably been one of the biggest stories of the season as well. Yamaha had two of the top younger riders on the grid, but both were waiting for that opportunity to pick up their first win. Both of them managed to do it this year. Van der Mark ended up finishing third in the championship. Lowe's ended up, as you said, David, I think he had four or five podiums through the year. A lot of front row starts, a pole position in Aston as well. But you know, for Yamaha to make that big of a step forward showed just what happens whenever there is the resources in place there. And as you said, Ducati were at the end of their cycle. Yamaha were arguably coming to the end of their cycle in the next year or two. That's where the R1 could potentially run out of steam in terms of what they can actually develop that bike into. But for the 2018 season, really with Vandermark and Lowe's, they made that big step forward as a team as well, where suddenly a lot of the problems that we saw in the past weren't quite so apparent. The R1 was a lot more competitive. If you look at Suzuka as well with Lowe's and Vandermark in Japan, we saw Vandermark have a great battle with Ray. So it was able to see straight away that when the bike was competitive, both of those riders were able to get the most from it. Van der Mark through the course this season, if you look for probably one of the best performances of the year, you'd think back to his Donington performance. So I think for Yamaha, they got to that stage and it probably helped that Ducati was on the downturn as well. But uh, they definitely made massive strides forward in 2018. Steve, you know, just to echo what you guys said before, you know, I think if there's a Paddock Pass podcast, like most improved team of the year award, like I might... I might be inclined to give a vote for for Yamaha's World Superbike ever because it's come such a long way. What I'm curious to to hear though is, you know, we've talked before in the MotoGP pattern. You know, I look at um, Andre, Andre Davizioso sticking with Ducati for so long and the value that that's had in terms of developing that bike and to you know give a rider the amount of time that they need to really understand the bike and develop it into what they need to be successful. I feel like that's kind of what's going on with Yamaha too, where they've been able to have a lot of consistency in terms of their riders and their package and be able to hone that machine into the the 10 tenths of its potential. Um, do you feel like that, that there's still one more room for there to be growth in that regard? Or is the progress that they're making coming from something outside of them extracting the most between rider and machine, like whether it's resources from Yamaha, more more team budget, uh, the decline of Ducati, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think that one of the key things is on Vandermark's side in particular, it was the second year with the Yamaha. The Yamaha is a difficult bike to understand. It's a difficult bike to get the most from because it wants to be ridden smooth, carrying wide lines, sweep through a corner and just carry all that corner speed. But obviously when you're racing, that's the last thing you want to do because you leave yourself open for attack. For, for Vandermark, it took time to learn to curb his aggressiveness to get the most from the bike. So that was what 2017 was all about. And then in 2018, he was able to have understood that and then be able to bring back some of the aggression that he has as a rider. And the other side of the box, we saw that you know Lowe's had a new crew chief this year with Andrew Pitt. That was definitely something that took a lot of time for them to adjust to and get the most from each other. For Yamaha, they made a massive change at Buriram where they brought in the Japanese spec electronics. That's a big change to make during the course of a season. It took some time to really get the most from those electronics packages, but then suddenly they lose um, Michele Gatto as well to the MotoGP effort. So 
Yamaha made all these steps forward in 2018 and you know there was a lot of circumstances that go into making those steps forward but I think maintaining that momentum for 2019 could be a big struggle because you lose Gata to the MotoGP team Yamaha is struggling in MotoGP so the resources are obviously going to be spent more and more in MotoGP and you know suddenly the Superbike team even though they made big steps forward in 2018 you know they might uh, find themselves unable to maintain that momentum for next year I've got a question for you, Steve, because I've I've found this interesting. You've been at Suzuka, I think, the past two seasons, and we saw that um, uh, Yamaha's wins at Suzuka at the eight hour that seemed to have a really big impact on the World Superbike program as well. In that it sort of proved that the bike can be competitive uh, given uh, given the right resources, and that uh, that that seems to have sort of persuaded Yamaha to actually put the resources in to make it competitive. Is that is that a, a reasonable observation? Yeah, I think if you were to look at 2015, Yamaha came back with a big effort in Suzuka. That was whenever they had Bradley Smith and Paulus Bagaro teamed up with Nakasuga. So that's when uh, Yamaha had the new R1 and they decided, right, we're making a big effort to try and win Suzuka. 2016, that's whenever you had Lowe's and Paulus Bagaro as the two teammates. And I think that that was probably the key the key event really in turning around Yamaha's superbike fortunes because in 2016 the bike looked like it could have been all right but it didn't quite get the results Gintoli ended up with a podium at the end of the season they had a few front rows and things like that but it was a bit of a disappointing year but Suzuka was probably one of the keys to being able to show that there was potential in the project because when Lowe's and the Spagaro tested together and that was on Bridgestone tyres as well um Lowe's was able to really surprise everyone with how quick he adapted to the Bridgestones on the Yamaha compared to what times Paul was doing as well. So for Yamaha at that stage, it really was a case of, all right, we can we can trust the feedback that we're getting from the Superbike team. And that sort of fed into 2017, where again, they made another big step forward in terms of what they were able to do at Suzuka. And with all those successes coming on the back of riders coming from the world SBK program obviously Vandermark was there the last two years as well so with both of the superbike riders able to give good feedback on the bike be able to develop the bike at Suzuka and be able to work well with Nakasuga to win at Suzuka showed that there was a value in the world SBK program and I think just being able to have that validation made a big difference for allocating resources and people towards the superbike project because as the last couple of years have progressed We've seen more and more Japanese engineers in the Yamaha pit box. And that's what makes the big difference. We talked about it at the start of the show about Kawasaki spending their resources. A lot of that comes back to the, the amount of brain power that they have available at a race. Yamaha is trying to bring that to the fore as well. That raises a couple of questions. First of all, the fact that we've got the GRT Yamaha team, certainly uh, the Yamaha people that I was speaking to at uh, Jerez at the test, you know, they saw the value of having, especially of, of having someone who was, you know, proven competitive like Marco Melandri on the bike, but they definitely feared um, uh, losing resources because it does mean that, you know, electronics guys are going to be, and data engineers are going to be, uh, spending time not looking at uh, Alex Lowe's and Michael van der Mark's data, but also looking at uh, Marco Melandri's data and um, uh, Sandro Cortese's data. And th that's going to, I mean, in the long run, it might be good for them, but in the short run, it's, it, you know, it's a, it, it's a loss to, to, to the team. So that, I think, is, uh, is definitely a concern. 
yeah, show me a rider that's happy for an engineer to walk to the other side of the box or to <laughs> another box. And uh, I've, I've not, not met him yet at this stage, to be honest. <laughs> No, that's that's true. The the other thing is that um uh well the other concern that I heard from sort of in you know, a paper Yamaha was uh, as we were talking about the the, the Ducati the revs which the Ducati um uh, can make uh, Kawasaki get there uh, at the start of the season you know everyone is reset back to uh, the the start of the year so Kawasaki get their revs back um, Yamaha have um, uh, a set of revs but they uh, I, they they seem to be concerned uh, about whether they there was enough actually in the bike to make it competitive with these with these new bikes yeah and that's a good point David just about the revs as well because Yamaha like many of the other manufacturers lost revs for 2018 and they definitely would like to get those i think it was 250 revs they lost they'd like to get that 250 rpm back just to be able to bring them back in line with everyone else at the end of the day last year they won three races they finished third in the championship with van der mark they had a lot of podiums but there was still clearly that gap towards the kawasaki's and ducatis and with a new ducati coming out kawasaki updating their bike obviously that gap could easily grow quite a bit more so i think both the riders and the team are they'd be quite keen to be able to get those revs back just to bring them back to the 3.3 percent above their production limit yeah steve i'll be curious to see where uh yamaha's development goes and, and takes them uh we've got some audio from from alex lowe's from from Hareth that i think uh, speaks quite well to kind of the points that you guys are bringing up so why don't we take a quick little cut to that and when we come back we will talk about Mr. Eugene Laverty and his adventures on the SMR Aprilia. Not going fast enough. Yeah, yeah. But it's not going fast enough. I'm not going fast enough. But that's about it. The bits didn't help. No, no, no seriousness. It's been a decent day. Um, Tried some new front forks. I actually feel better on the bike. I feel quite good, um, and I've got quite a lot of confidence. We've made a couple of steps in a few areas, especially with trail braking. Um, but yeah, it, you know, like anything, every year you know, the goalposts move. Obviously, Kawasaki were in front of us anyway. Ducati comes straight in, and they're stepping front, good half a second faster than us. So yeah, we have to try and improve the bike somehow, not by just changing. Fairing. Um I saw there was not a swing arm, a new one in your bike today, is that right? Just got one so swing arm for four riders, up. so but obviously we're not going to get all to try it, so um, hopefully I can try it tomorrow and see if we can find some benefits, but I'm not sure what Michael thought really, he didn't, I don't think. It wasn't half a second fast. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it was half a second faster anyway. No. <laughs> <laughs> but no, we need to improve our electronics. That's what I'm going to focus on tomorrow. Swing arm, corner exit, electronics, where we're losing the time. Um, because I feel like, yeah, I had a really good day today, really. Loads of consistent laps, lots of real fast laps for me, from what my pace is around here. But then you look at the other guys, and it's a bit too slow. So we need to actually make a step forward in an area, not just change a spring here and there and keep chasing a lap time for Hareth. We need to understand the exact area where we can find that chunk of time. For me, it's on the corner exit from the you know the way you get the power on the floor with it using electronics a bit better, a bit more confidence and maximising the power of that area. And that's what we need to that's where we need to work on. I don't think we've got anything to try this test to help that, but definitely the start of next year we need to be looking to improve there. 
you know, each season I feel like I, I have high hopes for for Eugene Laverty and and um, where his season will take him. And, and 2018 wasn't really any different for me, hoping that the Milwaukee Aprilia was going to be a competitive package. And, and Steve, it, it really wasn't the case. And I think uh, you kind of mentioned it earlier when it, when it comes down to resources and spending time and getting factory support. And 2018 didn't seem to be Aprilia's year. And I, you know, I think we're seeing the results of that for 2019. Yeah, I think that one of the key things to remember, particularly about Laverty's season, is injuries had a big effect on that. His crash in Thailand obviously cost him, you know, a couple of rounds. It cost him. Four, four rounds, I think, before he was actually back to full fitness. And that was at a time where he was also going to two of his favorite tracks, Aragon and Aston are two of the best tracks in the calendar for Eugene Laverty. And suddenly you miss those two rounds. That's a potential uh, 100 points that have been taken off the board for any team. So, you know, Laverty ended the season eighth in the championship. There was a big gap between himself and Lowe's and Fares and the likes of Melandry. But I think the season actually was on a bit of a knife edge for the Milwaukee Aprilia team. At the start of the year in Phillip Island, again, Laverty was leading the race, crashed out of that, that cost him points. Then you go to Bury Ram, you're starting to chase things, you have another crash, you then miss two rounds due to injury, another couple of rounds to get yourself back to fitness. It wasn't really until we got to the summer that we saw proper results from Laverty. And if you think back to Laguna, he was on the podium. Mizano, back-to-back rounds, he had two podiums. He had a pole in Portimao as well. Obviously, the Aprilia was a good bike this year. And I think that the team probably would have had legitimately an expectation for a lot more than what they actually ended up with. But I think there was a lot of factors that go into not actually getting the results that they should have gotten. I think by the end of the season in Argentina and Qatar in particular, we saw how strong that bike was because in Argentina, it just blitzed past people on the straight. So they clearly had that uh, the good power, the good top speed. They were getting good results at that stage. And I think if they had had one more year with that package, I really think that they could have been able to make a big step forward. Yeah, I mean, I think this year, um, the Aprilia in particular suffered badly from uh, the MotoGP program. Um, and the MotoGP program took a, a step backwards. Romano Albaciano was concentrated almost entirely on um, uh, on the MotoGP program. So there was just basically no resources available for uh, Milwaukee and SMR to actually uh, get in and, uh, you know, to actually help and try and sort out some of the problems. Well, understand too, guys, that this is a motorcycle that's been out for the better part of a decade now. Um, and and reading the tea leaves and on what's in the future for Aprilia, it doesn't look like they're really going to come out with a new bike until maybe the 2021 model year when the year of five homologations uh, come into line. So, you know, is there a feeling maybe that Aprilia has kind of given up on a superbike program? Because that's how it feels from the production side. Yeah, I think that for, well, obviously there's no Aprilia team on the grid next year. So they're not putting in their resources into World SBK. And Romano also said in Valencia after the team manager's press conference myself and one of the other superbike reporters was chatting to him just about world sbk and he made it perfectly clear that if milwaukee pulled out aprilia weren't going to support another effort for the 2019 season so as you said jensen there is clearly that lack of of impetus towards the superbike project and they'll probably wait until the next bike is homologated and if that's the case steve we can't really see someone coming on for just the 2020 model year on that bike so maybe we don't see Aprilia in the paddock for at least another two years. 
Well, you say that, but we've also seen uh, that Super Sport machine that Aprilia have been teasing as well. So maybe we'll see them in a different class. Well, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, um, the uh, Aprilia RSV sales figures are always uh, quite intriguing to me because I do remember uh, a, a few years ago hearing a rumour that I think they'd sold about five in uh, in in all of the Netherlands. I mean, the Netherlands is fairly small. There's only, you know, 17 million people here. But um, uh, only five bikes. I think uh, Honda was selling a couple of hundred here, you know, a, a couple of hundred Fireblades. That's a... It doesn't bode well for... Um, uh, for getting your money back from a uh, earning your money back from a superbike program. No, for sure. I, I can tell you from the American side, David. You know, Aprilia sells RSV4s in the hundreds, and sales are actually increasing. They're they're doing quite well, and I think that's partially to do with the fact that it's still a really good bike. Dealers are willing to make discounts on it. Uh, we're seeing the superbikes that it would compete against, like especially Ducati, are quite are getting more and more expensive. But it's still a machine that. The Japanese brands are outselling 10 to 1. And if you look at like maybe the nearest com comparable, which would be Ducati, Ducati is outselling them quite handedly, uh, maybe on a five to six multiple. So, you know, the sport bike market, as we've said before, isn't the biggest market right now. It's, it's, a, it's a real niche area that's getting smaller and smaller. And yeah, the dollars and cents of it don't make, you know, great figures for if you're an accountant. So I think that's part of the reason why we're probably going to wait until 2021 to see a new RSV4 Superbike rather than, you know, obviously we're not seeing one for 2019. We're not, I don't think we'll see one for 2020. I think they're going to they're buy their time and pick their moment with the way the uh, the regulations are working for street bikes. Yeah, I think also it'll be interesting to see if uh, Aprilia do what uh, Ducati did, which is uh, learn their lessons in MotoGP and apply them to the to their street bikes. They've certainly had a lot of lessons to learn in MotoGP anyway, Dave. <laughs> they they do have a few, <laughs> yes. They do have a few. That's savage, just savage. <laughs> but we've seen that a little bit with the wings. You know, to, to their credit, Aprilia was the first manufacturer to bring an IMU-powered traction control system. They're one of the first they're the first manufacturer to bring winglets to a superbike. So they're definitely taking things that they've learned in MotoGP and bringing them to the street. The problem is, is just no one seems to care. Uh, when it comes to sales um, or translating those technologies into sales, I should say. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, basically, their race or the Aprilia's racing program is being funded by Vespa scooters almost because it's all part of the Piaggio uh, group, and that's where they're that's where they're selling. But then again, you could say exactly the same of BMW because you know BMW's um, a racing program is being uh, funded by the sale of great big adventure bikes. Yeah, I was just going to say that with Aprilia in particular, if you look at their road sales over the years, like I remember whenever I was a kid, what bike did you want? You wanted an RS125. And now you're not looking to buy you know, an, an Aprilia at any stage. And I think that it's that shift is probably one of the interesting things. But as Jensen said, if with these new regulations in the next few years, they might suddenly be able to get back a market share. Because Aprilia, whenever they've brought out any superbike, it has been a game changer. Even if you think back to the... V twins at the start of the set of uh, I think the ninety nine season, they were a bike that immediately was able to challenge at the front and world SBK as well. When the RSV four came out, it changed the field. So you know we'll wait and see what Aprilia can do whenever they bring out their next bike. Yeah, I'll be very very keen to see. Um, I'm also very keen to see uh, how Eugene's going to go on that Ducati. Steve, do you have any predictions for me on that? 
Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what actually ends up happening with that team because when we talked to Gigi Delinia and Hareth, one of the key things he said, because I, I did ask him whether or not that there would be full technical support being made available to Go11, and Delinia said that that still hadn't been decided. And anyone that's looked at uh, BSB or looks at World SBKA or any other championship that Ducati support, if you have a Ducati, you're guaranteed Ducati technicians in the box. And there's no guarantee that that's the case right now as it stands for Go11 from what Gigi Delinia was telling us. Now, I myself have little doubt that uh, there'll be Ducati technicians in the box. I know that Laverty's already got most of his crew already decided around him and that uh, I think they're planning to be at the Hareth test in January and that'll be his first taste on the bike. So there'll still be enough time to be able to get themselves up to speed. They'll have six days of testing before Phillip Island, including two days at Phillip Island. So they'll have that opportunity to get themselves ready for the start of the season. And this really is the, the best chance Laverty's going to get for, you'd have to say, the rest of his career. This is the opportunity to get himself back on a front-running bike, get himself back to winning races, get himself back to challenging for a championship. Because it's been a long time since he was on that Aprilia fighting with Tom Sykes for the World Championship. It's five years ago. And even though that I think most people in the paddock don't have any doubts that Laverty's still got the talent, still got the speed... Until you're winning races again, it's a results-based sport and you need to get yourself back to the front. There's no there's no awards given for past achievements in superbike racing or in any other form of racing. Yeah, I mean, I think the lesson of Eugene Laverty is um, it, it shows how important the whole package is, uh, you know, the the, mm. the bike and the team and everything which goes around it. Uh, there's no, absolutely no doubt about um, uh, about Laverty's talent. He still has bags and bags of talent, but what he doesn't have is um, just the opportunity. He hasn't, um, he hasn't sort of been uh, been able to have uh, the, the stability around him to um, actually build towards some really strong results. Yeah, there's no eye in team, but there's an eye in mistake. And arguably, when a lot of talented riders start to fall down that grid, it comes from a mistake of choosing the wrong team or choosing the wrong time to make a move. And I think if Eugene Laverty was looking back on you know the last five, six years, he's made the right decision at the time, is what he'd say, because why else would you sign a contract at any given time? But they're probably not the places that he would have wanted to have gone at any given time. Like He went from being vice champion in World SBK to going to a Crescent Suzuki. And he was able to pick up a win on the Suzuki, but he wasn't able to be a championship contender anymore. Then he goes on to an open Honda in MotoGP, and it's just it's a slippery slope whenever you get yourself onto the the wrong side of a of a team's decision, as it was with Aprilia for 2014, or when you you know you don't make the jump whenever maybe there's opportunities available, like there was with Pramac in MotoGP for Laberty as well. So you know it's a it's definitely a tricky tricky slope for a rider whenever they stop getting the the offers that they probably warrant yeah i mean you see this really clearly in moto 2 and moto 3 because of the uh, because you know the, you know the machinery is so level uh, that's when you really see the difference between the teams uh, when you see uh, a rider in one team who a rider who seems to be really really talented and he has really good results with one team and then he goes over to another team and and all of a sudden he's uh, much further down the field or you know the, the other way around uh, John McPhee I think is a really good example where he's you know clearly capable of winning uh, winning races and being competitive as long as he's in the right 
um, uh, in, in the right environment sort of thing. You see the same uh, uh, Baldassari in Moto 2, Luca Marini in Moto 2, um, uh, Sam Lowe's who's uh, been up and down just depending on the uh, 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 on the environment he's in. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it 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 it's still very much a, a a team sport with more to it than just uh, just sheer talent and making the right right decision at the right time with the right team is really important. Yeah, I think riders need an enemy on track, but there's not too many riders that can function well whenever the team's not functioning around them, whenever they don't have the support from the engineers or their crew chief or the people around them, and some riders need to. They need to have something to get themselves annoyed about with a rival, but they all need to have someone in the team that's putting an arm around their shoulder. Yeah, you saw it um, in MotoGP with the Mark VDS team where there was the huge split with Michael Bartolomei um, uh, uh, around Jerez. Um, uh, uh, Jerez and Le Mans and um, uh, after a strong start things sort of they went a little bit sideways Alex Marquez went from being a uh, uh, you know a, a prime championship contender to someone who was you know winning races but not really uh, at the front, you saw Franco Morbidelli, even despite winning the the fact that he won the uh, Rookie of the Year uh, championship, or um, or uh, he, despite the fact that he won the Rookie of the Year award, um, he still sort of struggled much more in the second half. So yeah, the, the the we it's easy to underestimate just how important a a team is. Guys, I don't want to pile onto it too much. Uh, in, in agreement for what you've said about having the total package around you and how important that is. It's it's not just about the rider. It's not just about the bike. It's about the missed opportunities and the, the capitalizing on the moment and keeping the momentum. With that in mind, I'm thinking about two Americans that were on the grid with, with Honda bikes, and uh, we won't see them on the grid next year. And I think that kind of shows the, the pitfalls and the dangers that can happen in the World Superbike. So I just want to give a minute to talk about uh, the Hondas that were on the grid this year and kind of the the troubles that 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 brand seems to have in World Superbike. And obviously there's a lot of factors going on there and, and Leon Camier with his with his injuries certainly uh, didn't help things, did it, Steve? Yeah, obviously Camier was the leader for Honda in twenty eighteen and you know obviously he I think he broke nine ribs through the course of the Aragon crash, then he fractured his vertebrae in Suzuka testing so Leon never really got to show what he could do in the second the second half of the year the first two rounds he actually did quite well he was leading the races in Australia challenging at the front in Bury Ram as well but uh, obviously when you look at Honda's form in 2018 it's hard to not look at the two American riders Jake Gagne and PJ Jacobson because both of them struggled in 2018 two talented riders Jacobson, of course, he finished runner-up to Keenan Safoglu in the Supersport Championship. Gagne came across, he's a rider that's been able to score points, I think, in uh, national 450 uh, AMA motocross races. So he's a talented rider that's been able to show well on a stock bike in the US. But the jump to World SBK was absolutely massive for him. And every time he came into the pits, if you talk to him, he was talking about, this is the best bike I've ever ridden, the team's made a big step forward. But if the bike's always the best bike you've ever ridden, how do you poke? How do you find uh, holes to poke in the bike? You know, it's it's hard to really develop your understanding of the bike when it's so much better than what you've ridden up to that point in the past. And I think that was one of the big challenges for Gagne. He wanted to show what he could do. He was riding way too hard. He was too aggressive. It took him a long time to calm himself down. But 
the second half of this year, he actually did quite well. You know, he was getting closer and closer to Camier. If you think back to Magni Cor and Portimao, he was strong. Laguna, obviously, was running in the top 10 in both races in Laguna. So he did show some flashes. But unfortunately for Jacobson, we didn't really get to see too many flashes other than, I think, race two in Thailand. He was really strong and running inside the top 10. But other than that, Jacobson was struggling with the team. The team were adapting to a super bike after spending a lot of time on a stock thousand bike and it was just one thing after the other that we never really got to see what Jacobson could do on that bike obviously he went to Suzuka raced on the the Red Bull uh, HRC Honda in Suzuka was able to get on the podium with that but that was really the only ray of light that we saw from Jacobson through the course of the year I also have to wonder about the bike because as far as I can tell and Jensen you'd know much better than me but as far as I can tell that bike has basically had both new graphics updates um, since about 2007 or so uh, I think it's had sort of you know better sus uh, suspension and other bits and bobs but it's still uh, it's it's an old bike I was looking at the you know the the, the stock horsepower figures and you know the uh, it's quoted as producing 190 horsepower and the um uh, and the Panigale V4R is 217 uh, all the others are, two, are well over 200 so that's um uh, that's got to be a disadvantage as well and if they can't win at Suzuka Honda's the you know the biggest race of Honda's year then then there's definitely a problem yeah, David, you're not you're not wrong in your assessment. I mean, that's another one of those motorcycles that's basically been unchanged for the past decade. You know, with the caveat that the most recent iteration that you know um, SP2 just came out, the SP2. Well, that it's not just the SP2. It's the it's the whole line got a refresh in 2017, the 2017 model year, I believe. So that you know they, they made some improvements in the weight of the bike. They made some improvements in the the power of the engine and um, and then the electronics were a big step forward in terms of what was coming for the street. Now, yeah, your assessment's still correct. It's still probably about 20 horsepower down uh, in terms of just outright uh, horsepower figures. Uh, the electronics are a little bit, let's say, interesting in their application um, and just the way the rider interacts with it. For my own purposes, I'm about a second slower at my home track on a Honda CBR than I am on just about every one of the other leader bikes in the class. So, you know, there's there's definitely truth in the stopwatch uh, on on how far back they're being uh, or how much they're being held back by their their lack of development on the street side. Uh, I know on for the racing side as well, the kit HRC box for the electronics is not very, uh, let's say, highly regarded. They've definitely had some very high profile issues with it at Suzuka and at the TT. Um, it's a bike that is very difficult to get the Magneti Morelli electronics working with. Uh, we obviously saw a lot uh, this year in the season with with um, the Red Bull Honda team switching electronics and having Triple M kind of do the donkey work to develop it. And you know, at the end of the day, like you know, you're 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 kind of behind the eight ball with an older performance package. You're kind of behind the eight ball trying to develop and maximize electronics. You're switching electronics, which is a huge undertaking and you know i don't think the results that we saw are surprising from from those kind of considerations there's been a lot of talk about honda uh coming out with a v4 coming out with a new cbr i see one of these rumors you know just about every week and it's hard to say what's true i think at the end of the day we probably won't see something until again the 2021 
model year, maybe 2020 if we're lucky, but um, it would be be very hard pressed to expect high performance from from a Honda in 2019 and and maybe even the 2020 model year, or sorry, racing years. Yeah, so. I, I also think, um, uh, especially with Jake, you know, Jake Kanye came over, he had to learn almost a complete new set of tracks, the only track he'd raced at before. Um, uh, well, he'd, he'd raced a few on the um, uh, in the Red Bull he, rookies. He'd of raced quite a few actually, but from Red Bull rookies, obviously it's very different. But he had raced for the tracks on a superbike as well. Ah, right. Okay. Well, he, yeah, he's he's coming across. He's got um, um, uh, he's got to adapt to the world superbike Pirellis. He's got to work to the world world superbike sort of environment. And actually, being away uh, uh, being away from home for a long time, Honda lost. Uh, obviously, they lost Nicky Hayden last year. That put them uh, in, a, in a difficult situation. You know, Leon Camier was injured. Stefan Bradle came in, and then Stefan Bradle left. There's been so again. We were talking about stability, and that's the one thing that's really been missing from from that whole situation. Yeah, and I think that uh, as you said, David, with Gagne having to come in, he had to, as you said, learn a lot of tracks, learn Pirellis, learn the electronics, learn a new bike learn a new team, learn a new culture, learn a new, new continent. Like there's so much changes there. He actually came in with a really good attitude for us and he certainly enjoyed the year in terms of being in Europe, racing in the World Championship. But there was always that feeling he wasn't wanted by the team. The team did not, didn't want to hire Jake Gagne for the 2018 season. Red Bull wants to hire Jake Gagne. And they made it work as best as they could. But like all arranged marriages, there's always going to be that bit of a disconnect. And I think as the year went on, I think that the Tenkade team knew they were under pressure. They knew that they needed to get results. And we saw ultimately how that ended up working out in the last couple of weeks. But they knew that they needed results. And with Leon Camier out injured or definitely not at full fitness for most of the season, there's more and more burden of pressure goes on to the likes of Jake Gagne. And, you know, that, that wasn't what he needed for his development as a rider as well knowing that there was more and more pressure being placed on him and i think that there's a lot of factors that go into Gagne's season a lot of factors that go into honda's season but uh it's going to be it's going to be a while before we get to see honda at the front and superbikes again as you said the bike's got you know the bike has been long in the tooth for a while and they've had some updates but it's not exactly been a brand new bike like what, like what we're seeing from ducati or like what we're seeing from bmw this year so suddenly for Honda, it gets more and more difficult to be able to get back to the front. Yeah, I think if there's a team that can benefit the most from the the homologation rules and, um, you know, kind of this trend towards, you know, a very limited production homologation specials, I think it's Honda and they've got the history for it. And I think that if I was making choices in Japan right now, that would be the path I would be looking down. And, and hopefully there's some interesting things at the test track right now being being worked on. Yeah, I think for next year, I'd be really surprised if there's a big step made by Honda. Maybe at Suzuka, they make a big step forward because even if if you listen back to the podcast that we did after Suzuka, it was myself and yourself, JB, where we talked about the fact that Honda might have been at the front of the race and they were in a position to be able to challenge for the win, but a lot of it was just circumstances playing into their favour, safety cars, strategy, different things like that. They needed to make a big step forward at Suzuka as well. And now with the Marawaki Altea uh, collaboration and HRC having a lot more support and input in that program, maybe we get to see at Suzuka a big step being made by Honda with the Fireblade that maybe then translates to the 2020 World SBK season. 
Yeah, hopefully that'll be the case, Stephen. I, I know I'm certainly looking forward to the the 2019 season and and seeing kind of where uh, all the chips land. You know, we've got some predictions, and we'll see uh, see who's right and who's wrong. But um, obviously, there's going to be a lot of work going on in the in the European te- uh, in the European offices and in the Japanese offices to to get ready for uh, World Superbikes next next year. Phillip Island is rapidly approaching. We, we won't actually have to wait too long to see what some of these uh, developments are. Uh, in the meantime, um, we'll be teasing out for our Patreon some some audio from the Preth test and during the season. So uh, you should definitely be supporting the the podcast through that. The interviews that you heard in the show will have the full length versions of those on the Patreon site as well. And David, can you give uh, our listeners the details and all that? Uh, yes, uh, you can become a Patreon um, uh, for of the Paddock Pass podcast by going to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also uh, follow us and on the Facebooks and the Twitters. Uh, uh, Twitter is um, at Paddock Pass Pod and Facebook is facebook.com Paddock Pass Podcast. Uh, yeah, as I say, uh, over on Patreon, uh, if you fling us some money every uh, every month, uh, you help us make the show better and uh, you will also get access to some of the more exclusive and interesting stuff which we're doing. Yeah, there's definitely some really interesting things uh, that we've recorded that we're putting up on the Patreon page, a lot more detail in the interviews. If you're a true racing enthusiast, you definitely want to go check that out. I think, you know, listening to the audio that's come across my desk, it's been really uh, quite intriguing to see and hear, I should say, the uh, the things that are being discussed. Um, I'd just like to remind our listeners just real quick, if you're listening to this podcast on some sort of app or service, please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us get the word out and it helps other racing enthusiasts find the Paddock Pass podcast on their devices. So if you're on uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, any of those uh, podcasting services, please, 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 please leave us a rating and review. Uh, other than that, David and Steve, thank you very much for joining me today on our little Superbike uh, season roundup. It's been great talking to you guys again, and um, I'm looking forward to what we have uh, in store for next year. Me too. Thanks very much, JB. Yeah, thanks very much, JB. As you said, we've got a lot planned for next year as well, and uh, it's certainly going to be a busy year, I think, for all of us on the podcast, but uh, nothing wrong with being a bit busy. Nothing wrong with busy at all. So uh, good talk, boys, and I'll see you out there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear.